there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. This is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This week, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and DR, as we talk about the underreported news that you might not have heard about this week, but that you should know. Netta comes on to give us an update about what's happening with the protests, and then I sit down with Johnny Celestin to discuss the political situation in Haiti. And finally, DR interviews Will Driscoll about how roof reform could save lives. Now, my advice is about chaos in artistry or our gift. I was talking to a friend the other day, and I realized we were, we were just talking through a, a movie that was recently on TV, talking through a movie that we had both seen, about this idea that like so many people believe that their gift only shows up in the chaos. So they create chaos, or they sit in chaos, or they endure chaos around them in personal relationships, because there's this idea that that's where their best work comes from. And like, I want to push us all to think about how our gifts can show up outside of the chaos. That like, sometimes the chaos is just a crutch. So how can we like get out of that mindset that says, I need the things around me to fall apart so that like, then I can get it. And you know, this manifests in the like, waiting until the last hour the paper is due to start it. Because you feel like in that hour, the best ideas will come. It's like, our gifts are better than the chaos. Like our gifts can show up without chaos being present. Let's do this. All right. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am DR Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and the Twitter at DR Ballinger. I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is Dre at Dre DIY on Twitter. So, my news this week is great news, amazing news. Uh, it's coming to us from Inc., and it is some um, pure black girl magic. The article is about an Amazon scientist's $25 million plan to turn 12 abandoned acres in Jackson, Mississippi into a tech hub. This sister is all right with me. Her name is Nashley Cephas. She is a 35-year-old black artificial intelligence researcher at Amazon. And she is putting together a plan, actually she's activating a plan, to create a technology hub on 12 abandoned acres of vacant lots and derelict buildings in Jackson. Now, this sister is going to take uh, seven buildings, and over the next three to five years, she will create a makerspace, an electronics lab, a photography studio, apartments, restaurants, a grocery store, and an innovation center to teach entrepreneurs tech skills. In fact, she, she calls it a self-sustaining village where people can live, work, play, and eat. And this is um, a pretty exciting, I think, um, initiative. This sister is well-degreed. She has an undergraduate degree in computer engineering from Mississippi State, a master's and PhD in computer engineering from Georgia Tech. She founded an incubator and a tech consulting nonprofit in Jackson, which has helped more than 400 businesses. And she's from Jackson. So she, in fact, lives in Atlanta. She commutes back and forth between Atlanta and Jackson, but she's bound and determined to make something amazing happen 
in her hometown. She got a $500,000 grant from the Kellogg Foundation. She got the city to back her, and they've changed some of the zoning laws so that she can do her thing her way. Amazon has stepped up. She said, I thought I was going to get fired when I started this. And Amazon has stepped up and supported her with their future engineers program and their We Power Tech program. And she has closed on this property this past September. She's breaking ground this spring. And I'm super excited for her. I'm also just interested in where she found the chutzpah to do this. She says, and you know, lots of times we think, well, it's my hometown and there's nothing happening there and can I do it? And and she says, there's a quote in an article, she says, it had never occurred to me, even though I had sold a company to Amazon, mm. we I was working with some of the top people at Amazon, I led a whole startup, I started my own nonprofit, and it just never occurred to me that I, a young black female, could buy a building in downtown Jackson, Mississippi. Well, this sister's doing more than buying a building. She is turning these 12 acres into a tech hub, and she is doing it her way in her hometown. And uh, for that, I take my hat off to Nashley Cephas. Woohoo, Nashley, yes! Yes. <laughs> I First of all, I've done some consulting in the tech venture space, and there always seems to be an issue around how can we be more inclusive? How can we do this? How can we do that? How can we center folks of color and black folks? All y'all just give your money to Nashley, please. Just do the right thing. Um, invest in people like her. I just thought this was wonderful, Kaya. And I think, you know, we've been talking so much about the South, actually. So I thought this was something that we could highlight that wasn't, you know, doom and gloom, but really was like, here is opportunity. Here is an innovative plan to give folks the tools um, so I was really, really excited to see this, and hopefully we can just follow her along. So this is a truly Herculean effort. It's powerful, and it, you know, in reading through this article, you get a sense for just how difficult something like this is to pull off. Um, you know, she was denied uh, bank loans on three different occasions. It says um, she had to invest five hundred thousand dollars of her own money and get one hundred and fifty thousand dollars from friends and family to invest to make this possible. Um, so I just think about you know the. When we talk about the racial wealth gap, we talk about how hard it is for black people to get access to capital, to get access to the resources, to change the world, to build institutions, to redesign their own hometowns and, and think about creating opportunities locally. Like This is an example of how somebody was able, um, despite those limitations, nevertheless, to make things happen. And I think that that's really powerful. It shouldn't have to be this hard, right? It shouldn't have to be that you need an extreme amount of personal savings in order to make this happen, right? I think, you know, it shouldn't have to be that you have to, you know, apply for a very rare grant from Kellogg for $500,000 that I'm sure, you know, a, a very small number of groups probably get um, in order to make this possible. So I just think about how do we continue to open pathways and open doorways um, so that there is access for more people to bring bring these opportunities uh, back to their hometowns uh, and make things happen. Um, so my news is about Washington State, where this past week, due to a state Supreme Court decision in State versus Blake, for the first time in a very long time, drug possession is decriminalized statewide. All types of drugs are decriminalized. Now, how did we get here? So this might sound like wild. How did we get here? Well, it turns out that in two states, in Washington State and in Florida, 
There are drug laws that are written in a way that they don't require prosecutors to prove that you actually knew what you were doing was illegal in order to convict you of a felony. So in most places, they have to prove that you like knew the thing that you were doing was illegal. You knew that these were illegal drugs in order to successfully prosecute and convict somebody of a felony in these cases. In Florida, after about 2002, they passed legislation that basically eliminated that requirement. So now you found with the drugs, if you have the drugs, that like alone is sufficient. In Washington state, there are similar laws in place. And so the state Supreme Court in Washington state basically decided that that wasn't sufficient to grant due process um, to residents of the state. That in fact, that the state needs to either just completely rewrite its drug laws or take down and dismantle the existing criminalization of drug possession, but the existing laws that were in place are declared unconstitutional. So wanted to talk about this because I think, you know, this is a, the beginning of a new wave in sort of the, the effort to repeal the drug war, where I think, you know, phase one was very much focused on decriminalization and then legalization of marijuana. What we've seen even in the past year or so in Oregon through a, a statewide ballot initiative was for the first time an effort to decriminalize possession of all drugs. Um, and now Washington state due to this court decision will become the second state to do so. So already Seattle Police Department, other police departments in the state are starting to say uh, that they will no longer arrest people for drug possession alone. Um, and, you know, again, this is something that when you look at the polling data, at least in Washington and, and in Oregon and other states, it suggests that people are supportive of these measures. Um, obviously, they go further than what we've seen in other states. So, uh, you know, stay tuned to see how this might have a ripple effect across the country. The other thing that I wanted to add is, um, as you can imagine, the police are fear-mongering, Right. One of the majors in the Bellevue Police Department, he said, at this point in time, we are not going to make any custody arrests or arrests of an individual for having that controlled substance. Yesterday, it would have been, you could be arrested for that possession. Today, we're not going to make an arrest. And they are like, the Seattle police is, are also doing it. They, the Seattle Police Department announced a similar change saying that drug possession is, quote, no longer an arrestable offense. It also cannot be used as a legal basis to seize an individual. But they're doing all this stuff as a way to fear monger this notion that like crime is going to suddenly go out, like just ruin communities. And it's like, you know, we can think about making sure that people don't harm themselves or harm communities without putting people in cages. So like can't succumb to the fear mongering that will necessarily come from law enforcement. Uh, and, and really interested to see what happens because, you know, the scary thing is that the legislature could come back and make really crystal clear laws that are awful. And that is not good either. My news this week, y'all, is from the L.A. Times, um, and it's about the United States versus Billie Holiday. It's a new narrative film out on Hulu, directed by Lee Daniels. The uh, screenwriter for the film was Susan Laurie Parks, who, if you all don't know her, you should get to know her. She is incredibly gifted. The one thing that this article did leave out is that she's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Sis is bad to the bone. So she did things like um, Top Dog, Underdog. I don't know if y'all saw that. It was on Broadway years and years ago, but it was with Most Deaf um, and Jeffrey Wright. She also did the last play I saw before, before COVID, um, which was White Noise, starring um, David Diggs, which was incredible. But here she comes writing this script. The subject of Billie Holiday is so complex and so complicated, and I actually didn't know a lot of the history, I grew up with Lady Sings the Blues, which Diana Ross, obviously queen then, queen now. But it was a different telling of the story, right? Um, and so 
the telling of this particular story, uh, the, the screenplay was written from a chapter of a book, and the author of the book is Johan Hari, and the book is called Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And so basically, the film in this chapter basically tells more of the story about how Billie Holiday, how she entered the war on drugs, essentially, because what I didn't know, what the film comes to light, and I promise I won't do too many spoiler alerts, is that Billie Holiday was was targeted by the FBI, by an agent of J. Edgar Hoover. His name was Harry Engsliger. Essentially, we you know, we know that Billie Holiday was a heroin addict, but they really, really kept a close eye on her. They actually had, um, similar to Fred Hampton, um, they had a, a young black agent who actually followed her um, and, and was the reason when she was ultimately arrested. But really, it was less about the heroin and less about the war on drugs and more about stopping Billie Holiday from singing Strange Fruit. And so, again, I think we understand the context of Strange Fruit. Obviously, it's a critically important song to the civil rights movement, but it was super early. It was like 1939 when Billie Holiday sang Strange Fruit. And um, what this article lays out really beautifully is that there was a, a jazz critic, Leonard Feather, who said that Strange Fruit was the first significant protest song in words and music, the first unmuted cry against racism. Jazz drummer Max Roach, who if you don't know Max Roach, get to know him too, also said, you know, Strange Fruit was more than revolutionary. She made a statement that we all felt as black folks. No one was speaking out. She became one of the fighters, this beautiful lady who could see and make you feel things. So it was so early in the movement and Billie Holiday really sacrificed her entire, her career, herself. Um, you know, she, she died really early um, at 44. Um, she had a really rough life despite her, her, her fame. One, I think you, everyone should see it and I think we should learn more about Billie Holiday. I think Andra Day, who plays Billie Holiday in this film, does a really incredible job. Um, the other thing it just brings to light is how vulnerable you are when you're black and excellent um, and how you are targeted and how, you know, there's always the temptation of throwing someone else black and excellent of, or of color and excellent under the bus to get even further ahead. And I think there's some lessons of that in this film as well. So I just thought it was incredible. I thought Andre Day did a beautiful job. I wish we had more stories of complicated, strong, magnificent black women um, and I think Billie Holiday in the same space, really, of, of Zora Neale Hurston and others, that they were this incredibly talented women, but because of the era they lived in, they were only allowed to do so much or go so far. So, yeah, so that just wanted to bring that to y'all. I thought it was pretty compelling. One of the things that this made me wonder about was the song Strange Fruit, where it came from. And um, it was written by a white Jewish guy from the Bronx named Abel Maripool. Um, who saw a picture of a lynching and it haunted him. And so he wrote a poem about it. Abel Maripool was a teacher woo woo, and he published his poem in the teachers union magazine. And from there, a colleague saw the poem, thought it was promising, um, passed it. He, he was also an amateur musician, so he put it to music, gave it to a friend who gave it to Billie Holiday, and the rest, as they say, is history. 
But Abel Maripool was an interesting cat in his own right. And I think a lot of times we we don't know these deep, deep histories. Um, but, you know, anybody could be out there writing the next most amazing song of the century, which is what Strange Fruit was called. And, and that single solitary song that Abel Maripool wrote is the reason why the FBI was after Billie Holiday. They wanted her. I mean, this song was moving people all over the place, and they wanted her to stop singing this song, and they did everything that they possibly could um, to stop her. You know, it, it, it is wild. You Growing up, you you hear about Pro, you hear the stories of how the federal government, how the FBI uh, surveils and harasses and in some cases murders people. I mean, had done that in the civil rights movement and you become familiar with this idea, but you just fully, as you learn more, like this was, this was news to me. So like, I didn't appreciate the, the scale at which this was happening, going all the way back, you know, we talk about the 60s and the and the 50s. We're talking about now going back to the 40s, uh, even like the late 30s. And and it is wild to see the way in which, you know, as you said, Diara, if you are black and you are excellent, you are targeted by the state. Um, and it's just wild. It comes after you know seeing also the the new revelations around Malcolm X. And how the NYPD and the FBI also, um, you know, infiltrated his organization, infiltrated, you know, his work, his bodyguard, tried to remove them right before he was assassinated. His one of his top body, bodyguards was, it turns out, an undercover NYPD agent. As we tell these stories, they sound like they're conspiracies. They sound really wild, but I think we are just scratching the surface of like what actually happened, the scale at which the surveillance actually went down, the scale, the number of people, the proportion of of leaders, both in sort of the political space and civil rights space, in music, in culture, all across the space who were targeted, who were harassed, who were surveilled um, by the federal government. And you know, I, I don't even think that we're really at the point where we where we fully appreciate the scale at which this has happened, let alone in the past, let alone how it's still happening right now. DR, I think you said it perfectly, the sort of the, the risk of black excellence, like you nailed it. I legitimately had no, I thought it was just like the organizers they were targeting. That's what I thought. I, like, and that sort of, I understood that as like a tactic of the government to make sure people don't come together. It's like not a good tactic. Obviously, it's diabolical. But I'd heard that story so much that I was like, okay, the government's trying to undo the organizers. Got it. But I'd never imagined that they were targeting the singers too, like trying to disrupt like the fabric of solidarity, right? Like it was deeper than just sort of the organizers, the people bringing people to like bringing people together as activists. It was the disruption of like the fabric of solidarity. Like anybody who is helping create like mass moments of solidarity amongst black people, insert Billy Holiday, like that, the disruption came. So uh, I, I too think that we are just scratching the, the surface of this. It was really surprising to see, and I'm happy that this story, uh, the story is uh, brought to light. It also reminds me of um, the sort of the danger and harm of addiction, and how when we don't treat addiction as a public health crisis, we make incredibly gifted people, which is everybody, vulnerable to the worst of society. So we think about what does it mean that the FBI was able to prey on her addiction as a way to bring her down that what we don't see is a record of treatment. We don't see a record of supports and sustained supports. And it's like, well, this is a, and you know, people have explained it, you know, like she was, there's a lot of trauma in her life and, and you're like, yeah, but we can support people through these things, right? Like we actually have a, 
this is not beyond us. We know how to do, we can do this. Um, and, and when I think about her dying so young, you're like, we failed as a society. We continue to fail. We have failed. Uh, so many people struggling with addiction. So uh, mine is about TikTok. So, you know, I, I, I fall in love with uh, different wings of TikTok, whether it's it's the Bob for me with that dance I'm obsessed with in that song. And there's a host of things, but there's a community on TikTok that I wanted to highlight. And there's an article in the New York Times called Black, Deaf, and Extremely Online. And it's about the Black, uh, Deaf young people who are creating a whole new community very publicly and helping to bring visibility to Black American Sign Language. Now, let me tell you, I didn't know there was like Ebonic Sign Language. This blew my mind. Like it didn't blow my mind because I'm like, Black people are incredible. And of course, we made sign language with a little flavor and like just a little more chutzpah. So like... Shout out to the Black Signers, but it was really interesting learning the um, learning the history of it. And they talk about how white deaf schools in the 1870s and 1880s were moving towards what they call oralism, which placed less emphasis on signing and more emphasis on teaching students how to speak and lip read. And Black Signers were actually learning how to sign because in so many ways, the racism of the white deaf schools, like they didn't care whether Black kids like lip read, spoke or anything. They just sort of left these kids behind. And the Black deaf students like built a whole new culture within American Sign Language. And I thought it was amazing to read and learn about. Uh, the article also talks about how Black signers also tend to use larger signing space and emote to a greater degree and how there are Black Sign Language words for like tight, like like that stope or or chicken, like all these really cool things. You're like, I love it. And what's fun is that I've actually seen, like I know some of the Black deaf TikTokers, but I didn't know there was a community of them because sometimes on TikTok, it's not easy to find like communities of people. So I saw a couple and I saw one young black girl uh, respond to somebody being like, are you really deaf? And she was like, she this whole, this great response about like A, annoying and rude, but B like, we've always been here. Like she just like nails this like, do you think you're the only person that can use technology? Do you think you're the only person that can use the internet? Do you, the, do you think that you're the only person that can communicate with people? Like, it was just really beautiful to watch. So I thought that was great. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that there's actually a, a project called the Black ASL American Sign Language Project, which is a six-year research study that was started in 2007 that drew on uh, interviews with about 100 subjects. And they showed that segregation in the South played a large role in the development of Black uh, Sign Language. So this understanding that there were schools for Black deaf children began to come about after the Civil War and that they were, they were obviously segregated and it allowed for a different culture of sign language to emerge amongst Black deaf children, mostly because uh, there wasn't an effort to prepare them for college or to continue their education. Um, and it also talks about how a lot of white uh, deaf students went to Black uh, ASL schools or programs because the education was so high quality. So I'll just leave it there. I uh, learned a ton and it was beautiful to see the community highlighted. Two things stood out for me. There's always two things with everybody's articles. I'm not sure why, but the first, as a teacher, it was really interesting to me to see how a prevailing orthodoxy where instead of continuing to teach sign language faithfully, they were teaching oralism and teaching deaf people how to read lips and how to speak. And so American Sign Language didn't fall totally out of fashion, but that was the prevailing pedagogy of the day. And so a lot of talented white 
uh, teachers, white sign, American sign language teachers ended up going to black schools, as you mentioned. And so black people actually got a superior education in American sign language. Oh, and then we added a little flavor to it because that's what we do. And so that was really interesting to see how teaching orthodoxies shift and then cause these kinds of things to happen. And then the second thing that was really just beautiful to me was the fact that this Black American Sign Language is not new. This young TikTok lady has her grandparents and her great-grandparents in the video, and they've been Black ASL in their whole lives. And of course, regionally, there are differences. And of course, generationally, there are differences, just like the regular old English language, just like Black people from a lot of different places. We call different soda, pop, whatever it is, right? Why wouldn't Black American Sign Language be as complex and varied and integrated and flavorful as how we communicate with one another. I, I thought this article was great and thanks for bringing it to the pod, Duray. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Take the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. 
There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. And now I check in with Netta as she gives us an update on what's happening with the protests across the country. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning back in. It's me, Netta, and I'm so glad to be back with y'all again this week. Last week was personally uneventful. Thank God. And Sage is her usual fluffy and playful self. So I think that I shared with y'all that I actually became a plant mom recently. And look, so I see people on Twitter talk about how dramatic their houseplants are. And for some reason, I really thought that I was going to be different, that my plant parenthood was going to be so special that my peace lily would not at all be as dramatic as the ones that I see on Twitter. But oh no, I was sadly mistaken, y'all. Okay, so listen, what I need for you all to do is to send me your best houseplant care tips, suggestions for other low-maintenance plants, and I do mean Low maintenance, okay, because the internet lied. This plant is not low maintenance at all. She requires a lot of time and attention and talking to, a lot of prep. We do a lot of, like, morning affirmations. Me and this little peace lily, it's a lot going on. So I need your help. Thank you so much. (laughs) And so now let's talk about the news. There's a Wi-Fi STEMI of sorts that will be available for millions of people and families who qualify as low income. The FCC has approved $50 monthly internet subsidies and up to $75 for tribal households. The program also provides $100 off a computer or tablet. The pandemic exposed many things, including the fact that many folks don't have consistent or strong enough internet access to successfully work from home or attend school online. The FCC says the program could launch in the next two months once they figure out the logistics of how to make this all happen. We will see. I hope that this does become an actual plan. This does sound like a bit of relief and folks definitely need that. So last week, Malcolm X's family held a press conference to announce that they discover a letter written by an undercover NYPD cop who confessed to playing a part in breaking down Malcolm's security team. This new evidence points to a haunting but unsurprising reality, which is that it is highly likely that the FBI and NYPD had a hand in Malcolm's murder. The officer's name was Ray Wood, and it is his cousin Reggie who brought the letter to Malcolm's daughters. But since the press conference, Ray's daughter Kelly told the media that the letter is fake. She said that her father, who passed away in November, is not a coward and would have never, ever asked anyone to speak on his behalf after passing. The FBI is pleading the fifth, and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is actively reviewing the new evidence. So I definitely wanted to just share a quick story, which is that a few years ago, I got to spend some time with one of Malcolm X's daughters, Ilyasa Shabazz, while in New York City. And wow, at that sentence. Here's another wild sentence. And then I'll finish the story. (laughs) Olympian Tommy Smith was also there. You know, 
one of the two brothers who bowed his head and threw up his black power fist to protest poverty in black communities and other injustices during the 1968 Olympics. So listen, I'm still in awe of this moment and honored to have even been included in this conversation to be allowed to just sit at their feet and soak up so much knowledge and all of those gems during our time together. The final story today was about Brother Malcolm X. But what struck me over the weekend to bring this all up on the podcast was an interview clip I saw with Gail King and Ilyasa. Malcolm was a human being. Malcolm was a husband, a father, a comrade to his people. Hearing Ilyasa speak of the normal moments, whatever those are like when your father is Malcolm X and your mother is Sister Betty. Truly, it enriched my spirit, and listening to a daughter describe the love of her father really completed that picture in my mind. I respect his work, his principles, his jarring honesty, and I'm truly grateful to know his works and deeds. What a legacy and what a family. Keeping it short and sweet again this week. I'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Angela. You know, I've seen a lot about Haiti in the news, but I haven't known what's going on. And I now know about the political turmoil on a scale that I did not know at all. And, you know, there's been so much going on that I wanted to sit down with somebody who knows this so much better than I do. That's why I sat down with Johnny Celestin to interrogate the situation from top to bottom, help us know what's going on and what we can do. Let's go. So, Johnny, thanks so much for joining us today on Pate of the People. Thank you so much, Elliot, for having me. I'm happy to be with you today. So you're here because I've been reading a lot about what's going on in Haiti. I was in Haiti two years ago working with a teacher prep program that only worked in rural communities. So I was in Guayaquil and a set of places um, that were in rural Haiti working on teacher prep. And that is the extent of what I know about Haiti. I mean, I know the Haitian Revolution, but I was like, let me call somebody who knows more than I do. So thanks for being here. Can you talk about your relationship with Haiti? And then let's talk about what's going on. Sure. Well, I am Haitian-American, born in Haiti. 
I've uh, been here in the States for over 30 years, so most of my formative years have been here, but I came in my, my teens. Um, and, of course, being from Haiti, you know, the passion of back home has always pulled. In 2010, after the earthquake, I uh, decided to move back to Haiti with my family after, of course, a 25, 30-year career in the States because I felt that it was it was important for, you know, Haitian and the diaspora to kind of go back and, and help the country. And so I spent almost 10 years um, in Haiti, and I worked primarily in uh, the development sector, and I was also in the public sector. I was the deputy chief of staff at the Ministry of Planning. And so this really gave me an opportunity to sort of rediscover um, Haiti. And, and of course, the challenges that exist there have existed for generations. It's something that many of us are, are fighting for in terms of ensuring the kind of social justice and equality that we want to see, both in Haiti as well as, as here in the United States. And so really, my experience of fighting for equality here where I live in Harlem, which is where I am now, um, has really helped me in the work that I did uh, I did in Haiti uh, after the earthquake. So can you give us like a, a primer on sort of political landscape in Haiti and, and some of the challenges macro that the economy or the or society is sort of dealing with as we transition to talk about what is happening today and why uh, why is Haiti in the news today? Why is there protests in the street? But can you lay the foundation for like what the context is for Haiti and the way other countries have treated Haiti or like how, how we got to the conditions that we're in today? That is an important question. I think for many folks who may not know about Haiti or heard of it, kind of in, in passing when, when we're in the news for, for bad things. Um, I think it's important, particularly for the African-American community, to know that Haiti is the first country that came out of a slave rebellion. So in 1804, Haiti's, you know, Haiti's rebellion started in 1793. But by 1804, we kicked the butt of the French, the, uh, uh, the British, the Spaniards, um, but particularly the French, to become a free republic. And of course... Right after that, you know, Haiti was blockaded by all the world's superpowers. And for many people, this is the kind of endeavor, if you think about a small place like Haiti, a small island that is blockaded by the international community, including the United States, which did not want the ideas that Haiti was promoting around the Caribbean to reach the shore of the United States. And this idea was the idea that we're all human beings, the idea of equality, particularly for black people. And so when we became free in 1804, Haiti really made it a point to say, if anyone set foot on the island of Haiti, um, that person was a free person. And of course, you know, Haitian fought and uh, the American Civil War. And indeed, um, there are uh, statues of Haitians who fought in Savannah. Um, so we fought on the side of liberty across the Caribbean and Colombia and Venezuela. To this day, uh, to bring it to sort of the current time, Haiti has paid the price for this. The first price it paid was that right after winning our freedom, these countries blockaded us, and we had to pay a huge fine for to the French uh, because of loss of property. And I think many folks um, in the United States, particularly African Americans, can understand what that meant. So Haiti was, in the 1950s, occupied by the United States. And so we've been under the, the control of the international community for a very long time. So the struggle that I talk about, it's a struggle for broader recognition of Haitian humanity, but really a struggle for black liberation, 
and the struggle for, for freedom and equality in Haiti and abroad. Um, so this is the kind of context that brings us to where we are today in terms of the challenges that we face uh, because we continue to be under the control of the international community, in particular um, the United States, which plays an overwhelming role in dictating really what happens in Haiti in terms of who gets elected and who doesn't and how economy runs and who is in charge of the economy and all those kinds of things. Before we talk about this current moment, I want to know, what did you learn being inside the government? Because it, you know, it's one thing to see the conditions and to know the history and to think about it when you live in society, and that's not a less valid perspective. I do think it's so different when you see the machinations happen up close, when you are part of it, and you're like, wow, this is how decisions get made, or this is how decisions don't get made, or, or did that, how did that experience as Deputy Chief of Staff, how did that either change or inform, or like, I don't know, what, what was that experience like in terms of your understanding of both the, the problems and the possibility? I recognize the challenges that exist when one talks about governing, it is difficult. It is, it is hard work. And very often, for those of us who are on the outside, we say, well, why don't they apply X, Y, or Z policy? And, you know, when you're in government, you're juggling a lot of competing priorities, a lot of competing demands from different factions or different factors, right? Um, so this is the first lesson I learned. It really, like I said earlier, helped me discover the country. So I travel the country uh, uh, from north to south, east to west, and realize the, the disconnect that existed between the people who lived in the rural areas and those who live primarily in Port-au-Prince, an urban area. So that was, that was really, on the inside, the first lesson that I learned. So I do have an appreciation for the challenges that exist in government while you're trying to govern, right? I also realize that much of what we think is impossible or difficult to achieve is essentially rooted in people's unwillingness or inability to kind of make the, the decision that they need to make for the, the greater majority. The analogy is when you look at the United States and you see who runs the economy and, and how you know we can uh, bail out the banks. And as soon as you talk about helping a family have a place to live, you know, it becomes a, a struggle, a big disagreement. And, and, and so it's the same thing in Haiti, where there are very few families, about a dozen of them, who control every aspect of the economy, and they do so with an iron hand. And so in government, I realized both the challenges, but the opportunities that existed to make changes that would benefit the great majority of, of Haitians. And I think those possibilities exist today, and that's why we're trying to push as a Haitian-American community on policies that can really uh, uh, push the government because they need sort of that external push in order to make the right choices. Now, can you explain why, how, why or how there's a small set of families that control? It, when you say families, it seems like you're not even talking about like elected officials. It seems like, or maybe you are, I don't know, but can you explain why in 2021, there's still a small set of people, a small set of families who just can, who can control an entire country? Yeah. Well, right after, you know, the, the uh, Americans um, invaded or took control of Haiti, they made a decision that, number one, they would uh, centralize the country's economy, which meant that a country that was primarily rural um, became a country in which uh, most of the economy was centered around not just Port-au-Prince or the major urban centers, 
but really around importations. And so we were no longer sort of producing, but we're importing sort of basic necessities. And in order to really make that work, they needed to have control over who managed that economy. And so they partnered with a few families. A lot of them had been in Haiti for a number of times, but others were very recent immigrants um, who came to Haiti from Syria, from Egypt, from the Middle East. They were troubled back in their countries and they moved to, they immigrated to Haiti. And it was easier for the American occupation to deal with those folks as opposed to the larger uh, black population. And I think you'll see something analogous that took place, for example, in India. Um, so they centered everything and they also gave control of the economy to a few families. And that has consistently been the case for the last, I'd say, you know, 80 years. In the meantime, we had uh, the regime of Duvalier, the dictatorship regime, and he also sort of reinforced that process in terms of dealing with a limited number of families and cut deals with them as long as they supported his regime. They were able to control parts of the economy. And so we are in a place where Specific families have specific piece of the economy. Some, some people import rice, some people import iron, some people you know, import uh, a chicken. And so they control and they don't compete with each other. <laughs> you know, they sort of divide and they said, you get this part, I get this part, and we don't compete with one another. And, and in such an over-control economy, obviously, you know, it's a rent economy that's not producing the result of it is the level of poverty that we're seeing in Haiti, where over 4 million people in Haiti are living in extreme poverty, and over 6 out of the 11 million are in poverty. Well, that's the context. What's going on today? And can you talk about why America has an outsized influence? Is this exacerbated by the Trump administration? Did the Biden administration do something? Is nobody doing anything outside of the country, which is why things have gotten worse? You know, like, yeah. I, I don't know, like I, everything seems like an option to me because I just don't know. So can you help, help contextualize what's happening today and how it got to that place? Certainly. And I'll, I'll make it extremely short. The most recent history in terms of the last two presidents um, we had, and, and I'll say one of which I serve in his administration, President Marte Lee, um, who got elected uh, right after the earthquake. And his election was a result, really, of the Americans deciding that he was the one that they wanted. Of course, when he left office, he did a what we call a Putin, essentially passing the baton to someone that he had selected, someone who was never in politics before, but, you know, with money, um, with guns, they were able to get this person elected. And where we are today is that this current president's term has ended as of February 7th of this year. And he has decided that he, he would not step down, that he said, you know, for him, his mandate ends uh, next year. The United States and a number of folks, uh, countries in the international community um, have supported him in what he's doing, or at least even if they, do, they don't do it explicitly, they implicitly support him because... You know, well, what's, the, what's the rationale? So the rationale is that our constitution, the Haitian constitution, says that um, irrespective of when you, you take office, and, 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 and the reason why I think the folks who wrote the constitution put this particular um, clause in the constitution was because, you know, we, we've historically never held election when they were supposed to happen. And so for his case is that the elections started in 2015. Uh, there was a lot of issues in terms of fraud, et cetera. 
So they were put on pause. The election got restarted and they completed in 2016. They completed in November of 2016. What the Constitution says is that the president is supposed to take office February 7th of the year that their election was completed. And so this president election was completed on November 2016. And so based on the Constitution, his um, mandate started February 7th, 2016. However, he took the oath of office on February 7th, 2017. And as a result, he's making the argument that he started 2017. And if you add five years to it, which is what the Constitution says as the number of years the president serves, his mandate doesn't end until 2022. The funny thing about it is that there were senators and deputies who were elected in the very same election as he did. And he decided that last year, 2020, that their mandate was over because the Constitution says that it was supposed to start on the year that they got elected. And so when Stop he it. Come on. Come on. Yeah, it was his time. He, he felt like, no, 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 no. Um, completely forget what I said uh, for what I did for the Senate and what I did for the deputies, which, by the way, the Senate no longer exists and the president is now ruling by decree. Uh, he was like, disregard what I did for the Senate. Just for me, mine doesn't end until next year. So, so it's, it's, it's really um, a very odd situation. That is, that's something. So people are in the street. I've seen that there are protests happening. Is there like a party leading the protest? Has America said something? Or you're saying nobody said anything, which is just being complicit? What can be done? Do we just wait for a year? Like, I don't know. What's the what? Can the, so can the court have right now? rule? So or? what we have right now is Trump's administration had a hands-off policy um, to the extent that the administration was supporting what the Trump administration wanted. So, for example, you, you might have heard, you know, or you know, of the big sort of fight that the United States has with Venezuela. And Haiti being a member of the... Wait, wait, uh, assume we know nothing. Assume we know nothing. So what is the fight with Venezuela? So the fight with Venezuela is that um, the United States, so they had this long disagreement with Venezuela, um, but they're trying to push out the elected president of Venezuela. And in fact, one of the senators in the Venezuelan Senate self-declare as president. He said he was president and the United States recognized him as president. And as part of the process of trying to push out the elected president of Venezuela, they went through the international institutions like the uh, OAS, the Organization of American States, like the United Nations, to gain support for this idea that this self-declared president was the president of Venezuela. And Haiti being one of the members of OAS, because in terms of the, the countries that supported this policy and those that didn't, it was sort of equally divided. And Haiti was one of those countries that supported the United States in this effort. To the extent that Haiti supports the United States, they turned a blind eye. To where we are today, what we have is that civil society, and this is one of the rare times where civil society in Haiti, broadly speaking, and when I say broadly speaking, I mean the unions, the Protestant organization, the Catholic Church, which is not generally a bastion of you know, uh, support for sort of the general population, 
um, the universities, um, the people have been out in the streets demanding that this president leaves. They've been asking that from last year, from two years ago, because under his administration, the country has gone downhill. We have kidnappings happening. It is a new phenomenon for us. They're kidnapping people left and right. He has aligned himself, the president has aligned himself with the gangs who have themselves federated. So they have, they unionized themselves. They have a group called G9 of nine major gangs and various reports from human rights organizations, including the United Nations, have demonstrated the link between the administration, the regime, and the gangs in terms of controlling the population. And so, you know, the people are out on the street demanding that this administration um, leave, but now they're out on the street saying, look, your term has ended, and that's it. And so there is wide agreement across all spectrum. The only one that's been absent from this conversation so far, unfortunately, has been the business sector. And the reason, I believe, is because the president has given them everything that they've wanted. So they don't feel a need to stand on the side of the people as long as they're making money. But every single organized institutions um, are demanding that this president um, leaves because his term is over. And the people have been on the street every single Sunday um, for the last couple of weeks demanding that he leaves. Sadly, right now, the Biden administration is taken, I won't say hands off, because I think they're still trying to get their feet wet. And so yesterday there was the United Nations the Security Council meeting yesterday on Haiti. And, you know, the United States took some uh, steps to recognize the human rights violation, to recognize that this attempt that the president is uh, trying to change the Constitution, you know, they call it constitutional reform, that that's not a very good idea. They recognize that the gangs are a problem, that kidnappings are a problem, that people who are close to the president or close to the administration have been linked to the gangs, um, but they have not gone far enough because they're sort of saying, well, whether the president's term ended this past February or ended next year, we, we're not taking a position on that, but not taking a position is actually taking a position given the sort of larger-than-life role that the United States plays in Haitian politics. And so really what we're asking and what we're trying to do is to get people to know more about what's happening in Haiti because the struggle for um, human rights, the struggle for, for democracy is one that is clearly aligned with the same thing that we've, you know, I've been on the streets here with my wife and my daughter, um, Black Lives Matter, because it is about some very fundamental things um, it is not necessarily about a single man, which is just the president. It is much more about sort of a larger structure that exists that we need to get rid of. If you could control all things, you would have America do what? What America could do is quite simple. It's really to stand for what we fight for all the time, which is we fight for democracy and the rule of law. We're not asking really for anything more than that. It's really making sure that there is a transition that takes place, and that transition has to be an organized transition. So they need to help facilitate that because they're the key player in that process. 
Uh, number two, we need an end to the violence. Um, and, and, I, and again, because the United States and Canada and the United Nations are the ones who really provide all the technical support for the Haitian police, they can really have a great influence in getting the police to go after gangs, as opposed to, you know, shooting protesters who are asking for their rights. And then lastly, really, we want to make sure that we restore the rule of law in Haiti, right? And I think for folks who are here, what we're asking is to sort of say, when you hear this discussion taking place about Haiti, number one is to put it in the context of a broader demand for the rights of people of color, indigenous people, fighting for their human rights, making sure democracy works for them. Number two is to sort of say, you know, to your elected official, when this comes up in a conversation, please do right. We're not asking for any favors, um, anything more. Do right by the people of Haiti. Do right by democracy. Do right by human rights. And do right by the rule of law. And that's it. Right? That's it. Now, besides the United States, who else needs to act? Is this the United Nations? Who else should be doing something, not just the United States? Or really, is this the United, like, is the United States the biggest player in the space and needs to do something? Yeah, there are a handful of key players, right? The first, by far, the most influential is the United States. The second is France, which is, used to be, you know, our former colonizers. Um, by extension, when we talk about France, we talk about the European Union. But the Union tends to follow, in this context, you know, where France goes. And then, you know, the third could be, when we talk about Brazil, that also has a lot of interest in Haiti because they export a lot to Haiti. But certainly, the United Nations, um, which has a representation in Haiti called BNU, BI, and IUH, it's the UN representation in Haiti. They are the key actors and working directly with the government on behalf of the broader United Nations. And yesterday's meeting was about, you know, them reporting what was happening, whether they were making any, any progress. Um, so BNU is a key actor. Um, but again, overall, the key player in all of this is the United States. The, wherever the United States goes on this, um, the other players would then follow. Right. And when we talk about the United Nations, again, the United States is a key actor in there. So United States and France are the major, major actors in what happens in Haiti. I haven't heard people talk about France stepping up in the international space. And that is definitely my ignorance. So thank you for highlighting that. Uh, my last question is, do you think that the Biden administration right now is slow to act because they're confirming the cabinet? Or do you think that when we get everybody in, right, when we get all the people confirmed and, and whatnot, do you think that it'll change? Or are you worried? Are you hopeful? Like, and what can people do? Like, tell me. Tell us. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried. I have to say that in, in some of my fellow Haitian Americans um, who are starting to be concerned um, have pointed this out. I actually took time off, went down to Florida and campaigned for about almost a month for the Biden campaign. So I am a strong supporter of, of the Biden administration, and there are a number of Haitian Americans in the, in the administration. I do believe that the, the president wants to do the right thing, and obviously they have a lot on their plates, and that is understandable. And to the extent that they can sort of kick the can down the road and not have to deal with this right away, that's one of the things that they would sort of immediately try to do. But it's not because they don't have the people in place. Secretary Blinken is there. And the position that they've taken so far has only 
strengthen the de facto president because he feels that to the extent that the Americans are not saying that his term is over or to the extent that they're not being as forceful for him to respect human rights, he can get away with everything, right? And so I think, again, for us as Haitian Americans, what we're trying to encourage people to know about and the reason why we sort of talking to everyone is because, for example, the, the Black Caucus is very much aware of what's happening and has been a strong, as a unit, institutionally very strong supporter for the respect for the rule of law and democracy in Haiti. And, and in fact, they've written already to Secretary Blinken to say, this is not what the United States stands for, and this is not something that a Biden administration should be supporting. There is momentum to push back on this. What I hope is that as we talk to more of our friends here in the United States, they can help you know, the administration understand the urgency around this particular issue because Haiti has been through too much already, you know, 1804 till now, the earthquake and everything else, that we need peace, we need justice. And I think the United States, and particularly um, the Biden administration, who, by the way, promised the Haitian community when he went to campaign in Florida that he would be on the side of justice and democracy, um, who understood the issue during the campaign, we hope that he keeps his campaign promises um, to the Haitian-American community and uh, uh, support democracy in Haiti. We appreciate you. Keep us posted. We consider your friend of the pod. I can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I hope I can look forward to being back on the podcast. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Just Egg. Trying to improve your diet in the new year? A good place to start is with Just Egg. Just Egg scrambles, cooks, and tastes just like the eggs you're used to, but it's made from plants. Just Egg is protein-packed, but with less saturated fat and no cholesterol. And that's a big deal, knowing how much cholesterol is in eggs. The science is pretty clear. Plant-based diets can have a dramatic improvement on everything from heart health to life longevity. Personally, you know, I love a breakfast sandwich. I had the bomb breakfast sandwich this morning with a biscuit and hash browns and sausage and whatnot and a beautiful egg that now that I'm thinking about it, I should have just used a just egg, right? And if you haven't tried just egg, you'll be pretty blown away that it's made from plants, not chickens. Just egg is a great way to start eating more plant-based for your health without sacrificing taste. And you know, you know who loves just egg the most out of all of us is DR. DR swears by just egg. And it's because it tastes and cooks just like conventional eggs, put in an omelet, scramble, French toast, banana bread, pad thai, whatever you would do with eggs. Use a Just Egg. Just Egg is also better for the planet, using 93% fewer carbon emissions and 98% less water than a conventional egg. Did you know it takes 53 gallons of water to produce a single egg? Yes, 53 gallons. Another good reason to go plant-based. You can find Just Egg pretty much anywhere at most grocery stores, including Whole Foods, Walmart, and Kroger, and on Amazon Prime Now or Instacart. Just Egg, a better egg for you and your family. Now, Will Driscoll has been studying the effects of how roofing shapes the way heat travels in buildings around Baltimore. And today, DR is talking to him about how a simple solution can impact the lives of so many people, something called cool roofing. DR, take it away. Hey, everyone. Um, it's Diara. So excited to um, dig in to what we're about to talk about. So I won't leave y'all um, in suspense any longer. We have Will Driscoll, who's founder of White Roofs for Public Health. 
um, doing a lot of incredible work in Baltimore. Will, why don't you just jump in and talk about, you know, who you are, the work you're doing, and we'll, we'll go from there. I reached out to a bunch of professors for advocacy advice, and it worked. I had learned that the scientific study that showed that heat impairs sleep and that poor sleep impairs health, and I knew that flat-roofed row houses in Baltimore and other places, other buildings with flat black roofs, the roofs get hot, very hot in the summer, and they convey that heat into the buildings. And so I knew that people in these buildings are exposed to the heat. And now this scientific journal article said that that heat is impairing their sleep and poor sleep is impairing their health. It's a public health problem and nobody was talking about it. So I reached out to about 50 or 100 public health professors and one of them got back to me right away. And that was Dr. Joshua Sharfstein a vice dean at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And he basically said, you know, this is an interesting topic. And he put me in touch with a sleep researcher at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Adam Spira. And that was two and a half years ago. And last September, uh, Dr. Spira and, and about 10 other researchers at Johns Hopkins announced a million-dollar study of just the issue that I had raised with them. And they are going to look at um, the effects of heat from hot row house roofs in Baltimore on the sleep and health of the families who live there and to what extent can cool white roof coating solve the problem. Wow. Can you talk just a little bit about like who are the people living in these houses? Like in particular, you know, I, I've, I've dug into some of your research it seems that the folks that are being predominantly impacted by this are, are in East Baltimore. Can you talk a little bit more about that community there? East Baltimore indeed has a lot of row houses, and all row houses and a lot of other flat-roofed buildings, apartment buildings in New York City, Newark, New Jersey, have this problem. Uh, so do row houses in Philadelphia. There's about 300,000 row houses there. These row houses are in lots of cities east of the Mississippi, places like Louisville, Kentucky, Richmond, Virginia. In Chicago, there are two flats with flat black roofs. And in New England, there are triple deckers with flat black roofs. This scientific study that I mentioned, they determined elevated nighttime temperatures are associated with poor sleep and that the populations most affected are both the low-income and the elderly populations. So those are the groups that would be helped by cool white roof coating. That coating brings the roof temperature down on a summer day from 150 degrees and makes it 55 degrees cooler. So that's a huge difference, basically the same temperature as the air temperature. And so that keeps the families living there cooler as well. Wow. Yeah. So that super helpful. And I, th the other thing that surfaced while I was doing a little bit of research and learning about these issues is that loss in sleep is one of the things that that contributes to poor health. But some of the conditions that actually present themselves, heart disease, diabetes, dementia, stroke, depression, you know, you've made this great link to like, yes, yeah, sleep deprivation is kind of this catch all this like data point that we can point to. Um, that really captures, yes, low income and the elderly are at risk, but 
can you paint more of a picture of us of like what's happening in these communities and, and are we seeing these types of diseases being more prevalent? You know, what can you tell us just to give our, you know, our audience a better sense of how people are personally impacted by this? I think the Johns Hopkins study is going to attempt to get at that problem. One of the issues is that heart disease develops over decades. Mm. And if your arteries are getting clogged, you know, the arteries to your brain, if they're getting clogged, it ultimately causes stroke. That's a process that occurs over decades. These researchers, they combined two data sets. They looked at data from about 800,000 people who self-reported the nights on which they had trouble sleeping. And then they combined that with nighttime temperature data for the cities in which those people lived. And so the data set was so big, and the, the people reporting it had no idea that the scientists would come along six years later and compare their data with the nighttime temperature data. So there's no bias in the data. What they found, they, they basically proved that excess heat impairs sleep. And then they cited other scientific journal articles that showed, like you said, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, depression, and suicidality, mm. and also that poor sleep harms cognitive performance. Then later studies since that 2017 study have made the connection between poor sleep and Alzheimer's disease, which is a fatal disease and the leading cause of dementia, and also stroke, which can be deadly. And if it doesn't kill the person, it, it can cause disability. The more I learn and the more um, you kind of wrap your mind around this, I mean, it is, to me, tantamount to what we're seeing around the water crisis in Flint and some other um you know, communities in the United States. We've been covering on the pod also an environmental justice activist named Catherine Flowers, um, who works in rural parts of the country, particularly Alabama, to ensure that folks have proper septic systems um, because a lot of folks are living in waste, essentially. So there's so much room for narrative around environmental justice issues, particularly when it comes to communities of color, low-income communities. Um, and will I just see this as a part of that larger narrative, like getting these stories out around, but for, you know, a roof being black or white, you have these significant environmental impacts. Where are we in terms of, you know, kind of the advocacy of it all? I mean, you know, we've had a change in the administration, which is great. How do you see that impacting this work? And, and then we'll, from there, we'll, we'll figure out, you know, what our listeners can do um, additionally on the advocacy side of things. It's interesting. The two examples you gave about Flint, Michigan and Alabama, there were government actors who did bad things. Mm. And with these roofs, you know, my mother and uncle grew up in the Philadelphia row house. It was built in 1925, like basically all the row houses in Philadelphia. And the asphalt roof, asphalt is basically tar, it repels water, it makes a good roof. Mm. And so there was no malfeasance. Um, it's just that. Now we have this new information about heat and health, and we know that white roof coating is tried and true. Cities all over have been doing it for decades to the extent they can afford it, which is very minimal, unfortunately. So it's new information 
and the challenge is to get anybody to care about it. That's right. And um, so you mentioned the federal government, and indeed, Biden wants to weatherize 2 million homes, and I say that should include cool white roof coating. We need to be protecting people from excess heat in the summer, as well as saving on their energy bills in the winter through weatherization. However, I believe the main way to get this done is to require landlords to coat these roofs white. And a city has the authority to do that, enact a public health law to require this. And a number of cities have already required that landlords provide working air conditioning in their rental units. You know, just like a landlord has to provide a working heater for the wintertime to keep a family warm in the winter, Mm -hmm. that's a public health law. And a city can require landlords to protect your tenants from excess heat. I think the wrinkle is city governments, the real estate interests, contribute a lot of money to city council races. And if they like you, they'll contribute. If they don't like you, maybe they'll run negative ads against you. So far, there's only one city council member that I know of, and that's Baltimore City Council member Ryan Dorsey, who has spoken out for white roof coating. He says that cool roofs are a human rights issue. Where are the others? A, it's not a well-known issue, so why should they step out first and take the risk? And B, maybe they, some of them are aware that this is a real issue, but they worry about the landlords even though it's quite inexpensive, two coats of coating on a roof, that is not expensive at all. I guess, well, that was going to be what, one of my questions. It's like, what, what is the estimate on it? I mean, is it, is it a large expense? I mean, it's not like putting a new roof on. You're just painting the surface, correct? Right. Philadelphia's Energy Coordinating Agency, which has been doing white roof coating for years, they say it's $1,200 per row house roof. And that's for two coats, a prime coat and a top coat. Mm. And that low cost comes because they contract for a number of roofs at once. And, Mm. you know, at least on one occasion, they coated almost all the roofs on a single side of the street in one block of row houses, like 15 houses all at once. So, you know, you get economies of scale when you do them all at once. For an apartment building, you know, there's so many floors You know, if you divide the cost of the roof by the number of units in the building, it's going to be well less than $1,200 per unit. Right. And, you know, and it's also something just in terms of like, you know, even the framework for how we're thinking of this, like really it's like, does it matter to some? Yeah, obviously it matters (laughs) how much something costs. But to the extent that you're saving people's lives and that you're improving their quality of life, like whole families, blocks and blocks of families, you would think the cost would be the least of our problems. You know what I mean? It's a point in favor of white roof coating. Yeah, that's right. And in in favor of requiring landlords to do it. There is the energy savings benefit. Um, I've said that these roofs get to be 150 degrees in the summer. That information is from the U.S. Department of Energy. And they got this information out because they wanted people to save on their air conditioning bills. And so, Mm. you know, that's definitely a benefit, you know, for people that that are trying to stay comfortable in their homes, you know, with, say, in a row house with a window air conditioner and trying to overcome this constant radiant heat from their ceiling. And comfort, you know, comfort is 
pretty important too. You know, people are just that's miserably right. that's hot right. all summer that's long. Right. And the summers are hotter now than they were, you know, years before. Yes. Yep. Uh, however, I like to say that we don't have public comfort laws. We do have public health laws. And so if you want a city council to pass a requirement, they can pass a public health law. That's right. And so, and well, can you just dig into, because I know you have a, you, know, you have a construct for requiring land, landlords to um, bear the burden of making the, the roofs white. What's the schematic there? So what, like, what if a landlord doesn't do it in your proposed construct? So yes, let's say a city council passes a law that says landlords have to coat these roofs white. So what if a landlord doesn't do it? Well, you don't want the people to suffer because their landlords are intransigent. The city would need to go in and coat those roofs white and then bill the landlord on the property tax bill. And then what if the landlord doesn't pay the property tax bill? Well, hopefully they all will, okay? But if, right. if right. some of them don't, a city is legally authorized to collect on the property tax bill by selling the property and giving the net proceeds back to the landlord, minus the property taxes that have not been paid. Yep. And you know, that, that all sounds workable. And, you know, the other thing that I'm thinking, the other layer to this, Will, is that, you know, going into another summer of this pandemic, a lot of folks having to be at home more than they would be usually makes this issue even more kind of high stakes. You know, it's, it's in addition to COVID is just like a, a public health issue, but also just what is required of people to be at home more and to be in increased temperatures within their own homes. Is that something, have you, is, has that factored in at all to the, the research that's going to happen at Johns Hopkins or, or your thinking at all? You know, we got to think about the people who live in these buildings. You know, we can't mm-hmm. always be worried about, oh, you know, the landlords, oh, they might not like it. You know, what about the people living in these buildings? That's right. And, you know, and if you rent a row house, uh, you probably don't have the money to coat the roof white. And even if you did, you do not have the legal authority to coat the roof white. That's right. You That's you right. are absolutely at the mercy of the landlord and at the mercy of the city, depending on the city to require the landlord to coat the roof white. That's right. That's absolutely right. And so, okay, and it, it's just so surprising to me. I don't know why I still get surprised by wild things, but it's still, it's surprising that there's only been support by one member of Baltimore City Council. What do you suppose that is? Do you think it is around awareness or do you think it is... I mean, because I guess, obviously, the awareness does lead to the advocacy and getting more people involved. But are there any other reasons that you can possibly think of? Why was City Councilman Ryan Dorsey able to get it and no one else? Uh, He said that he rides his bike through East Baltimore and it's the hottest part of the city. Mm. So he he has experienced the heat just on the street he's talking about. So he and, of course, the pavement of the streets radiate heat back up to somebody riding a bicycle. And so I think it's, you know, the understanding is key. And I'd like to talk about radiant heat because sometimes people say, oh, what about air conditioning? We don't often talk about radiant heat, but the simple way to understand it is if you're walking on a city street in the summer and it's a hot day, everybody knows the shady side of the street is cooler. The air temperature is the same on both sides of the street. But on the sunny side, you're also exposed to the radiant heat of the sun. And so it feels hotter to you. It is hotter. 
You know, your skin is heating up from the sun's rays. I'd like to tell your listeners what happens with these hot, flat roofs getting to 150 degrees. Please. When the roof is flat, there are only a few inches separating the top floor ceiling from the roof. The asphalt roof gets to 150 degrees. It radiates that heat downward to the top floor ceiling. And that ceiling, in turn, radiates heat to the people living there. We don't actually know how hot these top floor ceilings get. I don't believe anyone has done research on that, and and I have an idea for citizen data collection uh, that we might get to. And so the top floor ceiling may not get super hot, but it's really big. It's a really big radiator. It's a whole ceiling. And you can't imagine anybody choosing to put a radiator across their entire ceiling, running nonstop all summer long, no matter how much air conditioning they have. Nobody would choose that. So, you know, we got to get rid of it by coating the roofs white. And local officials need to understand radiant heat in order to understand why this is a, an important issue. Well, can you just hit on one, one more thing? I know there's some distinction between gray roofs and white roofs. So can you just kind of lay out what, what that is and what we should know there? Some people, like I said, from the Department of Energy have known that black roofs heat up the building. And so some people have contracted for a gray roof. Uh, unfortunately, a gray roof has only half the cooling power of a white roof. And so I would argue that when we're making progress on getting the black roofs coated white, we should also make progress on getting the gray roofs coated white. It's 50% better yeah. than a black roof, but right. it's 50% not as good as a white roof. That's fascinating and also good to know because I'm sure that <laughs> that would have been a, a question from our listeners. So thank you for that distinction, Will. Sure thing. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Cricket Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elzey. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.